I'm Tyson Yucca-Porter. My name is Ellie Rennie. And this is Disconnect, a podcast about the internet and remote Indigenous communities. Welcome to the final episode of Disconnect, which was recorded in front of a live audience during the What's Governing Web3 conference at RMIT University in December 2022. Tyson and I started this podcast back in 2018 when we were doing some research for Telstra on how people in remote communities were using the internet and social media platforms. We called it Disconnect because connectivity can be a real issue in remote areas and because technology platforms were not designed with Indigenous norms and rules in mind. Making a podcast seemed more appropriate than writing research papers, as people in remote Australia had been making their own radio and television since the 1980s. We brought in the Indigimob project, run by First Nations Media Australia, to help us on the production side. While others were focused on the superhighway, we travelled down a digital dirt track that wove its way through a vast area full of stories and surprises. We covered in Digimojis, privacy, connectivity, misinformation, images of dead people being shared on Facebook, and so much more. We learnt an immense amount along the way, and we are grateful to everyone who took part in Disconnect. But we've now come to the end of this particular dirt track. And maybe the internet, as we know it, is also experiencing a fork in the road. So for our final episode, we will be talking about Web3 and Indigenous governance. Before we get stuck in, here's a bit of background on some of the terms contained in the live recording. Web3 describes apps and online environments that work together using blockchain technology. It's different to Web 2.0, the internet most of us deal with on a daily basis, in some key respects. The first is that Web 2.0 is dominated by large platform companies, the likes of Meta, Google, and Amazon. These companies have gained enormous power and capital over time because they were able to build things using data generated by us. They also gave us payment rails so that we could transact online. In other words, we go through them because things would be hard, risky, and unreliable if we didn't until now. While the internet has changed the world by making it easy for us to send information to one another, Web3 makes it easy for us to send value without needing to go through a large company at all. We can own things, yes, cryptocurrencies, but also data, reputation and other things, and decide who we transact or share them with. For this to work, Web3 platforms cannot be controlled by a single entity, as that would give that entity the ability to manipulate records in its favour. Instead, Web3 relies on blockchains, or to be precise, virtual machines containing records and software instructions that are maintained by many people at once and when no one has to seek permission to take part. One of the big open questions about these permissionless decentralised infrastructures is governance. Who makes decisions on things like software upgrades? One way of doing this is to set up systems where people who have a stake in a protocol or application can vote and run some code so the outcome will automatically execute if enough people agree. That's the basis of what we call Web3 governance. 
Because of these tools, you can also create online communities where there is a shared ownership and control over assets and processes for deciding what that community spends its time doing. These are called Decentralised Autonomous Organisations, or DAOs. The speakers in this episode of Disconnect refer to DAOs a fair bit. We also mention NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. These are essentially tokens that represent a unique object, like an artwork. I think that's enough for now. I hope you enjoy this discussion on Web3 and Indigenous governance. Web3 demands that we look at governance from the outset, as we've heard here at this What's Governing Web3 conference. In the initial design of systems and the actions available to people who participate in them over time. But what does Web3 look like when its governance is built from First Nations law and ontologies? So in this live episode, we will discuss what Indigenous governance is, how it works in practice, and the opportunities and challenges of building Indigenous governance into Web3 protocols and applications. And today we're joined by three guests. Yes, so I'm Megan Kelleher. I am a PhD candidate at RMIT, um, and I am uh, looking at the affordances of blockchain and whether they are uh, culturally appropriate for Indigenous governance. And I'm also a Barada and Gapulbara woman. Kia ora, everyone. I'm Robert O'Brien from Aotearoa, formerly known as New Zealand, um, or sometimes known as New Zealand. Uh, I am not a lawyer, which you might see on the program, list me as the lawyer, but I'm not, but I do converse with lawyers. Uh, I'm actually a software engineer with a specialisation in high-performance distributed computing in the financial market space. I've been involved and interested in uh, the whole financial cryptography space for about Oh, 25 years or so, Ngāti Rua Nui, Ngā Rua Hine, and uh, Ngāti Kahanga Nui Wairapa are my tribes from uh, New Zealand. My name's Rick Shaw. I'm a Cabellaroi man from northern New South Wales, and uh, I'm a mathematician who works at Deloitte, and I'm actively developing insurance and finance solutions for Web3, both for Indigenous communities and consistent with Indigenous principles, where I think there's a lot of overlap with some of the constructs in Web3. So that's uh, Rick the Camilleroy Pirate, and we've got uh, Robert the Poly Polymath, and uh, <laughs> Megan the, the Burrida uh, Princess. Princess? <laughs> matriarch, budding matriarch. You know, and we're all meeting here, you know, in on the lands of the Kulin Nations, um, under an embassy, you know, of Indigenous law, which we can enact here. The men of this space can enact this, but as always, the law is laid down by the woman. Um, it's laid down by mother side country, mother side family. Um, so yeah, I think we'll get uh, Megan to bring us into that and uh, map the territory for us with regard to blockchain as well. I don't know, Ellie, if you want to come in under the, these embassy protocols or if you want to stick to your traditional law under which your husband and your father owned you, or? <laughs> I'm happy for you to just take it away from here. Okay. Megan. All right, sweet. <laughs> All right. So I am going to, um, I want to foreground this conversation first. 
by um, highlighting that I'm speaking only about the governance of the first peoples of this continent. And I also want to highlight a distinction between an Indigenous governance model that is underpinned by what is referred to as first law or what Nunga legal scholar Irene Watson calls raw law um, or customary law, the law of the land, and a governance model that is conducted by Indigenous peoples in relation to and under the constraints of their subjectivity within within the Australian Commonwealth and its constituent states, so whether that be at a local state or federal scale. So this form of governance or regime is officially recognised by formal legal institutions and in many cases may coexist with first law regimes that may be hidden from or invisible to formal institutions. They may be complementary or contradictory. So it's going to be impossible for me to go into any real depth uh, in the time frame. So I'll be speaking at 1.5x, but quite simply, Indigenous governance is concerned with every kind of knowledge needed to look after the land and to have a stable society. So what I'll try to do is outline the key aspects of Indigenous governance. So it's based on the principle, and I quote Christine Black, that the land is the source of the law. So this is first law. It's also based on a responsibility to self, community, country and future existence. So Indigenous governance is place-based. Aboriginal people are intimately connected with land. A person's identity is embedded in the land. Our social relations, our spirituality is derived from our connection to place. What an ecologist might describe as a bioregion and what Deborah Bird-Rose describes as a nourishing terrain is what we describe as country. And this extends into oceans and into sky country. Each place has its own sacred origins, its own sacred and dangerous places, its sources of life and its sites of death. Each has its own people, its own story, its own way of life, its own law. First law, which is sacred. Compamary elder and academic Mary Graham says that everything comes from the land. So this includes all life, knowledge, language, song, law, everything. The land is a sacred entity, the great mother of all humanity. Therefore, it is not property or real estate. And in fact, it is our duty to care for country. And our creation stories provide the archive of how country was formed and how our sacred custodial relations, obligations and ritual ceremonial customs and practices came about. Indigenous governance is relational. It's not just relational, but relationalist as an ethos. So a web of complementary systems established with the intention of managing how humans live with each other without killing each other, living in place without ruining the environment and to live without alienating ourselves from each other and the environment. But more importantly, it's an ethos that ensures the virility, strength and increase of life-sustaining systems. Indigenous governance is totemic. Rose describes totemism as a common property institution for long-term ecological management. Totemism constitutes a jurisprudence of responsibility and rights. This institution assigns to each person sacred rights and responsibilities for a complex of relational entities. These responsibilities are inherited through kinship. 
While each person is considered an autonomous being who belongs to an autonomous clan group, which is an autonomous collective, each individual identity is realised in relation to the collective and has a responsibility for a totemically interconnected system of entities. So when I said before that a person's identity is embedded in the land, this is why. So in this sense, land is kin. We are of country because we come from country and we go back to country and all of our ancestors and those who follow are thereby interconnected. Past, present and future is connected to the land. So Indigenous governance is interconnected, interdependent and intergenerational. There is no country that is self-sufficient. This is a very flawed concept. The practices at the local level can and usually do have regional implications. Each place is dependent on others from other regions and this is enacted through totem. Your totem informs everything. All the protocols that pertain to you as an individual and how you relate to other people, places and entities. Where you can and can't go, places that are sacred, where practices might be restrained or encouraged and who you will engage in those practices with. Marta Poblet talked earlier this week about fractal governance. When describing Aboriginal authority, Strello described an ancient ensemble of interlocking parts bound together by a shared and enforceable set of norms. So, for example, fragments of law from country in the Blue Mountains is found in the law of country in the Kimberley and vice versa. So this applies to the entire continent, which comprises what Mary Graham describes as a framework of autonomous regions across the country. So Indigenous governance is polycentric, or what Mary Graham describes as a multipolarity. There is no central group, no hierarchy, no one group that dominates other tribes. They are all their own boss. If you can imagine a country of all local governments that are all interdependent. And these interdependent links are encoded in song lines or ancestral dreaming paths and custodians from across the continent will come together to facilitate regenerative flows of exchange between biocultural systems. So Indigenous governance relies on complementarity where responsibilities and rights differ depending on one's relationship to country. For example, whether you're on father's side country or mother's side country, Men may hold the responsibility to burn country, for example, but they require the permission of the men whose mother side country they're on. And the women are responsible for organising the burning. And if the men do it incorrectly, then they are accountable to the women who will punish them. It is not possible to fulfil one's obligations without the complementary cooperation of other kin, and this may extend across multiple regions. So this is intended to distribute authority prevents unilateral actions and ensures that the regional implications of all actions are appropriate. So compared to Indigenous governance under the constraints of the settler state, Indigenous governance nowadays looks like what is described as self-determination, which is arguably a form of governmentality where the management of colonial policy is enacted by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. It looks like Aboriginal corporations, native title, prescribed body corporates, boards of directors, which look more like the kinds of corporate entities that we're more familiar with today. And I want to strongly distinguish this from first law.
Mm. Now, Brother Robin, so Kopa Pamari and the living law of Aotearoa have maintained and and asserted and increased uh, presence throughout the industrial era and through all the permutations, Web 1, 2, and 3. Um, so from, from your perspective, um, having built Web 3 systems, uh, maybe you could lay out the terms, define Web 3 for us to begin with. To define Web 3? Um, okay, uh, so the way I think about, first of all, I don't like the term Web3. It's too incremental. I prefer Web cubed. Um, so, <laughs> Web cubed. <laughs> uh, because then you end up with Web5 and the other and the other derivations thereof. So, cube, Web cube is more important because largely you're bringing together the uh, technology stack, the people where that we uh, Megan was just kind of talking about, uh, and a large part of that, and then all the also the information substrate that it's based on. And we're bringing those together in an explosion that I don't think we've experienced uh, since uh, the steam engine type situation. Mm. Um, so, uh, to me, uh, WebCubed, if you want, is basically the uh, uh, ability for us to create uh, well, digital infrastructure for the diverse expression of culture. And by culture, I'm including into that the notions of economics, governance, and those sort of structures. So, it's a digital infrastructure. The idea of it being um, this diverse cultural expression brings in notions of uh, self-determination. So in Māori, we would refer to this as tino rangatiratanga, the, the ability to do self-sovereignty, self-agency, self-governance, uh, those sort of notions. Uh, so inherently, the notion here of this decentralised structure is part of that, uh, but also um, the ability to access the customary knowledge. Now, in Māori, that's referred to as mataranga, which includes the customary law systems, which is tikan. Mm. Uh, so uh, that is structured more like a permission system. Um, so to give it language within uh, institutional economics, which is being discussed here, it's more like a, a club or a, a commons in, in building up the systems. And so underlining all of this is that the technology here enables us to create richer forms of uh, property rights and ways of governing. So um, that's just a short mm. snapshot of what Web3 is. That's both the how and the why. Mm. So in terms of the where, you know, like directionally, you know, where's it, where's it all going? You know, um, particularly from a point of view of Maori customary law, um, it, yes, in the assertion of sovereignty and, um, and beyond, you know, is it possible to map that customary law? onto these technologies? Um, I th yeah, I think there's actually a, a perfectly natural fit to them because essentially from, as Megan was describing, there's obviously a lot of, I can speak uh, to a certain degree from a Māori point of view, um, uh, a lot of the ideas and stuff map to uh, Māori, different terms, for example, we are all from the stars. Uh, so the wairua tongue of the spiritual aspect says, well, actually, hey, there was a big bang and we we're all from the stars. So everything on the planet here that we are, we are, we are built from that idea of uh, um, Papatuanuku and Ranganui being separated and light coming in and filling us out. So first of all, we are part of the land. There's no distinction between myself and uh, my kin, in the sense. Uh, Whakapapa plays a very, very important role. Uh, so my ancestor is Taranaki, my primary ancestor, um, which is a mountain. 
and in the case of New Zealand law, actually has legal personhood status as well as a result of that. Um, so, um, you know, we, we are basically saying from a relational context, we are part of the environment or the whenua in which we live. Um, exactly the structures that Megan was discussing are very similar. So we're orientated around uh, whenua as opposed to country, which is the term here, but the same basic idea. Uh, a lot of the things is inherently polycentric in a lattice type of form. Mm. There is hierarchy to some degree, but um, largely it's based on the actual unit of decision-making and self-determination is the whānau or the extended family, as it's called. But it goes up into things like hapu, which is the sub-tribe, and then arguably something called iwi, but that may be a, a, a set-in-state designation rather than what was naturally part of it. Uh, a core principle, if you like, in the way it's, which is structured is the idea of korodo or conversations, that we're always in a conversation with each other to try and meet uh, agreement. And one of the key central parts of the protocol or, or, or the way in which uh, Tikana operates is through the notion of place, um, that there's a meeting ground or something, which is typically referred to as a marae. Uh, which is where a lot of uh, particular rituals and stuff, which actually are, is a way to both demonstrate uh, the customary practices, but also to evolve it as well. And innovation's not uh, stagnant in these cultural governance structures. Absolutely not. No. So you're actually, is it true that you like, were putting the server floating in the creek to earthquake proof it? Um, I heard that I don't know if it was an urban legend or what. Uh, could well I, be. I, I, I don't know about that one. <laughs> could well uh, be. I, yeah, I've heard some great Maori stuff. Rick, what do you reckon? Kamilaroi got attacked together the same way. You're uh, you're the you're the pure mathematician, so Gertelash and Black this up for us. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's pristine black. Yeah, um, yeah. The um, I want to my angle on this. But my, my feelings about this is that we, 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 we as First Nation cultures, we recognise that all culture comes from the land. The constructs that I'm hearing and trying to put in place with Web3 are informed by my culture. So what you hear from Megan and Robert, they're available, they're available to you as, and, they, and, as, and I think are really good guiding principles for how we want to construct Web3. Because we... Our cultures are all about looking after land. And by land, we mean everything. The land, the sea, the trees, and family. So I'm excited about Web3 because I see everything up to now, Web2 and all the corporate world, as actually constructs of, the, of colonialism. And I think Web3 is a recognition that we and you want to start moving beyond the oppressive hierarchical structures that have given much to a few to the disadvantage of many. Can I ask a question here, which is, I mean, going back to some earlier themes that we've looked at in Disconnect around different notions and systems that we would call an economy, um, whether it's the household economy demand sharing systems in remote communities where there's a kind of reciprocity or, or a different um, a different obligation, I suppose, over resources as well and how they're shared. And I'm particularly interested, I suppose, in 
from Robert's perspective, I mean, it may be different where, uh, for, with your people and your culture, but um, are they, how does these tools such as NFTs or tokens, things which are very economic in nature, uh, can they be useful for different types of economies as well? Different types of economies? Um, as opposed to my economy. Right. I, I think there is a mapping of uh, we can imbue the technology with certain types of meaning. So if my interest was purely just speculative, then all I'm interested is um, you know, uh, being a degen, you know, going to the moon, pump and dump, all those sort of things, if that's what my culture is. Um, so we can imbue the technology with any sort of meaning that we like. So it's up to us um, to use it in a particular way. So one of the things that for Indigenous cultures or Māori, the view I take from Māori is that they can greatly inform um, a lot of the way in which we bring meaning back into the technology in a way that is more balanced and more equitable. Uh, that's my hope and that's my desire. And we've talked, Megan talked about the idea of relationship as being incredibly important and fundamental to what we're doing. Uh, and th this is something I've been sort of playing around with at the moment is that there's a priority kind of placed on Western notions of fixing bits of information um, and it's the artifact that seems to be rather important. So, And we end up with things like functional decomposition and hierarchy. Whereas if we take a, a relational view being pri the primary thing, and this is coming through in DAOs and the notion of governance is all about actually the soft governance power. If you put that front and centre, then how do you go about doing that type of soft power uh, economy in, in many respects? So there's various different concepts within Māori that are geared around uh, things such as uh, what, what we'd refer to as mana which is sometimes referred, uh, thought of as reputational prestige. Uh, but it's actually a really important idea that um, uh, from an economics point of view, I can frame mana as operating as something like a generous tit-for-tat with costly punishment because um, it's basically I give up some of my mana. Uh, when I make a statement, I'm bringing along the mana of my family or the hapu of my tribe or anything else like that. And so these sort of things can be represented in tokens and indeed they can be um, uh, used to, to do that. In fact, we sort of see things like coordinate that we've talked about before is actually reflecting some of this idea of uh, social reciprocity and the accountability and stories to build this notion of trust in the communities that uh, are using that as a particular tool. And that's literally how mana works um, at this sort of different scale. And it's important to remember because what we've got going on is um, through the corridor or the conversations that occur all over the place, um, there's a mental accounting that's going on. Uh, there's uh, uh, transactions that are occurring. Did that person honour or preserve my money when I gave them a bit of information? Those sort of things. So in terms of being alternative economies and stuff, I think actually it's got, uh, Māori in particular, have got a lot to inform everyone that's working on DAOs, quite frankly. So is that an alternative uh, economy? I don't know. I think it's a blending. Yeah, it is. It's just going to be like, uncle, can I get some ETH? That's the only yeah. thing that's going to change for <laughs> yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, and just and quickly back to Rick, but opening it up to everybody, the point that Rick was making, you know, it sounds like it's like, you know, ah, oh, no, the people should run this empire, you know, and like historically French Revolution, you know, etc. It's everything that, that, that came after that that hasn't gone very well, particularly for us in the southern hemisphere. 
you know, like seriously have to look and who, who are going to be the winners, who are going to be the losers, what are the things that we need to look out for in this big reboot, this Enlightenment 2.0, the, the, the entire thing, this new revolution, you know, for the people. Um, yeah, where do we really need to look and how, how do we need to be smart? I think that there's a lot of idealism in the development in Web3 and the DAO, and I think that there is a lot of reinventing of old structures such as cooperatives and mutuals. Um, and, and I think that the idea of the beneficiaries running running the governance systems is means a few people are putting their hand in the honeypot, and I think there needs to be a bit of a transition in uh, the transition to be able to enact the Web three constructs. I think we need a bit of grey hair there, and I do suggest that I, I listen to me and Robin and Tyson, and, I, and I'm just I, I'm just so filled with how much these these incredibly sophisticated old cultures, which we are aware of, have to give to to the Web3 constructs. Web3 is conceptually, seems to be desiring to get to what we, what we get, how we construct ourselves as cultures. So the invitation is to share the gift of our culture. That's that's what we want to do as Aboriginal Australians and Maoris, is to share, because this is, we our culture comes from the land, and this is a gift of culture that we want to, that we're ready to share. I kind of want to go back to the the concept of NFTs and tokens, and um, and how that sort of translates, I suppose, to our economy. You know, the way that it can be brought forward, perhaps. And I, I think about um, you know, authority was valued, and and it was gained through knowledge. And through doing the right thing, and I sort of think about, you know, if if an NFT instead of being a, I mean, you know, obviously it represents value, um, or it represents a, a a token of a thing, yeah, a unique thing. It's, it's really just a thing, isn't it? And so, um, you know, if if a person could amass, you know, sort of NFTs based on their demonstration of sort of responsibility to um to country and to community and you know um i think that would be just an interesting sort of um you know i suppose transferal of um cultural exchange in some way you know um and i just wonder whether that fortune could be passed on sort of intergenerationally as that as that information is or as that knowledge is sort of shared um you know through time so um rick you have you got ideas about how we could use it i suppose in in a more pragmatic sense around even services and and this kind of idea of having control of the infrastructures and and governing those infrastructures and services the way I think about our cultures, we don't actually separate theory and practice. We live our theory. Uh, and so I, I'm an ex-regulator, financial regulator. And well, this 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 um, this event is about governing, um, how to govern Web three. 
and I, I just in, comp, in response to some of the, the, the prior discussion, I would say that we will we we should take, how we governed ourselves was by looking after the land was was our principal organising structure, and we we needed no separate governance. And I would suggest to you that if you're setting up Web three, set up your own governance because all I mean as an ex regulator. The, the, the regulatory and the parliamentary and the whole systems there are to uh, protect the current vested interests. So I'd, I'd really... So one of the... I'm working with a lot of uh, Web3 companies who are looking to set up, and one of the problems that they're having is uh, in, to get insurance. And I, I, my, my field of expertise is in insurance. And it, not being able to get, say, professional liability... Do, what's it called, uh, directors and officers liability, which you're required to by um, to, to set up a lot of businesses, is means that a lot of businesses can't get set up. That's a, it's, it's, so that's, it's actually a, one of the ways, not enabling insurance is one of the ways that innovation gets stopped so that the present large players can, you know, uh, the oligopolies that run Australia, the Colesworth problem, re- remains in place. So what we're trying to do, what I am doing, is setting up insurance and eventually financial structures which will be made available to Web3 businesses uh, so they can access insurance, so they can do business. But as part of doing that, I'll be sta- I'll be, I need to establish uh, the standards by which you need to meet to, um, to become insurable. And that's, that's the path, that's the start of the path to us working out how to govern ourselves. Wow. Mm. Can just riff on that a little bit? Please. Um, so there's a particular problem within uh, uh, Māori, which is land problem. Uh, there's three types of property titles, or two plus one, uh, in New Zealand. We've got the European Western title, and we've got the Māori land title, and we've got customary land, which is not registered but recognised. Um, and in terms of the customary land title is typically associated with uh, um, where Marae and those sort of places clearly identified are. But there's this block of land which is typically um, quite hard. Uh, in many cases, it's been the situation where land was given to us in replacement for some other land that we happen to own, <laughs> so to speak, or occupy. Um, and uh, what happens is we've got a big engagement problem uh, because this is co-owned land. It's never clear ownership. Uh, accessing who actually owns it you know, from a, a Western legal standpoint is rather difficult. And as a result of that, uh, it can't actually be used for productive purposes. It kind of is dead capital in, in many respects. Uh, so, uh, therefore, it can't be, you know, we can't go off and get loans or mortgages to actually improve the land or turn it into different purposes. So, this idea of actually being able to use the land and register it appropriately to reach out to different owners and engage them with the land, because that's actually quite important as well. We've got a situation where we've got urban migration. So, because land is so important, the fenua is so important, but yet uh, our people are moving globally into urban centres and stuff, they're getting slowly disassociated or detached from the land and its meaning. So how do you bring them back in? 
So this starts to open up opportunities for well, the Web3 sort of work, opens up opportunities to include new types of governance structures that actually could help improve a lot of Māori land and increase the engagement with the land, thereby, thereby enriching and ensuring the longevity of the culture. Can I just say that one of the anti DAO entities I'm working with is enabling is, exact, is, is also enabling re- people in remote parts of the world to be economically productive through Web3 and, and stay in their rural areas with their families. And that's a re- I find that's a really exciting part of, of Web3. It's allow, it's, it will allow us to rebuild rural communities if we do it properly. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. Tyson, I know you've been sceptical of Web3 in the past. Have we changed your mind? Um, I, I have to be sceptical about it um, just because Megan owns the entire internet in our house. <laughs> Everything digital. I'm not allowed to talk about it really. So I just kind of, you know, adopt like a Luddite uh, perspective and, and, and I avoid having to have an opinion on it. Which is really you, can, you can be the roadie, mate. Just yeah, yeah. plug the stuff in. This is how I avoid engagement. And this is how I like try to follow the law in our house. Wow, I have not only um, stopped disconnect the podcast, I've reached a kind of end for Tyson's dis- preparedness to talk about I anything. I think this is actually my marriage might survive. Me. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, I might start. We're I'm, still I'm... engaged. Really long engagement. Really long engagement. Every time I say affordance, she adds another six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I am the blockchain overlord. <laughs> she blockchain auntie. <laughs> on, the, on the skepticism side, one of the ways in which I explain uh, blockchains to my people uh, is um, I do a direct comparison to what's referred to as Faranui. Uh, so on Amarai, there's a particular... Um, building, which is the primary meeting place, it represents our ancestors, and inside of it, it's got the store of knowledge in terms of all the carvings and everything else like that. So most people here will talk about a blockchain as being a database, or a distributed ledger as being a database. Uh, to me, it's not that. That's the overriding architecture. It's actually a network of databases, and we're gossiping between each other to update the stories that are in each of our databases, much like we do with trying to uh, discuss the, what we're doing right here, uh, updating this. Um, but uh, So one of the key ways in which I, I describe um, a blockchain is basically saying, well, it's actually like this network of Faranui because the Faranui is our store of knowledge. Mm. And they get it straight away. Mm. So if there was a solar flare tomorrow, then the wet wear would still remain of all the uh, relations. No, all the stories, all the, story. yeah, yeah, all the stories, yeah. all the conversations that yeah. you're in constantly and uh, would remain. Mm. Yeah. I think that is a perfect note on which to end uh, today's yeah, yeah. Disconnect we, podcast. I've got to say thank you, Ellie. It's been a hell of a ride. It certainly and, um, has. You're going to read us out with the credits. I this am. But first of all, thank you to all of our speakers. Disconnect is produced by me, Ellie Rennie, for RMIT's Digital Ethnography Research Centre. Telstra funded the project. Massive thanks to Mark Sulikowski from Telstra. James Milsom is the editor and script editor for Disconnect. Tyson Yankaporta is co-producer and co-host. 
thanks to Indigimob and First Nations Media Australia. And to all the people who have taken part in Disconnect over the years, thank you. And especially to our live audience here today. Please stay tuned for my new podcast, which is being created with James Milsom, which is called Mutable, which will look at Web3 in the wild. Thank you very much. We drove this part like we stole it, Ellie. We did. Like we stole it. Now let's park it on the salt pan and set it on fire and walk away. <laughs> That's exactly what we're going to do.